I'm glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. So remind you where we were last week. So Absalom is David's son, and he is the heir apparent to the throne. And he spent two years kind of um, sowing seeds of discontent, we'll say. He's Part of David's job as the king is to make sure everybody gets justice so he would hear the most difficult cases would be brought to him. And Absalom's basically setting up at the front gate and catching everybody before they get to David and saying, you're not going to find any justice in there. But if I was a judge, then you would get justice. He's implying David's not doing a good job and he would do a better job. And so after two years of doing that, he asked David to let him go down here to Hebron, down here in the bottom. And that's where Absalom was born, and that's where David was anointed king. And he goes there, and he brings 200 guys from Jerusalem. He invites 200 men. They don't know why they're going. They just go because the prince asked them to go, and that's what you do. So they're in Hebron with Absalom, and these trumpets sound. And he has already sent out messengers to other cities and says, when you hear the trumpets, everybody yell, Absalom is the king in Hebron. And so that's what they do. All of we don't know how wide the conspiracy is. It's relatively broad. People begin to proclaim down here that Absalom is the king. So David's up here in Jerusalem and he hears that Absalom is the king and he hears that there's this conspiracy again. He doesn't know how big it is. He knows there's 200 of his guys that are supposed to be with him that aren't. And so he's he doesn't know that they're not necessarily with Absalom. He just knows they're not with him. And so that's going to make him wonder and think. And so what he does is he gets his household, his family, his servants, part of his his, his personal bodyguard, and they leave. So they're going to try. They're going to move over to the Jordan River. It's about 20 miles away. So uh, they're running away from Absalom as he's coming into Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to look at today is David running. Um, It's 20 miles. They say you can walk a mile in about 30 minutes. So in your mind, what we're going to look at today, think about 10, 11 hours of David with his family and with his attendants and with his personal bodyguard. This is hundreds, if not thousands of people. This isn't a small handful. And they're moving through the wilderness to the Jordan River with the idea of, depending on what's happening with Absalom, they can cross the Jordan and that puts a river, a barrier between them and his army or not. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, starting chapter 15, verse 13. The messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately for he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord, the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites and Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. So again, David doesn't know how vast the conspiracy is. He hears Absalom has declared himself to be the king, and so he takes his family, his attendants, and his personal bodyguard, and they all leave. The city. I get the impression they left in a relative hurry. He leaves 10 concubines, 10 women behind to take care of the palace. We don't know what David's uh, motivation was. We don't know what he was thinking, what was in his heart. Was he scared? 
Um, Jerusalem is well fortified, very difficult to take Jerusalem. David's actually the only guy in history who's ever um, overthrown Jerusalem. So it seems like he could have just holed up there, but maybe he didn't want to get caught there. Maybe he didn't know how many people within the city were for him and how many were with Absalom. We've seen uh, over with David over the past several weeks, he has a real difficult time uh, bringing his sons to discipline or account. And it may be that he just doesn't want to have a encounter with Absalom. He doesn't want to risk a fight because they don't know what he would do. He doesn't know if he could actually go through with that. We, we don't know, but he chooses to leave. It is telling to me that when David hears that Absalom has declared himself king, his first thought is we've got to get out of here because he's going to kill us. That's his son he's talking about. So that makes me think that although David hasn't acted for the past several years, he's known in his heart something's not right with that boy. He's he's doing something. He's up to something and David never moves, maybe he never lets himself think it mentally, but in his heart, he knows there's something going on here, which to me makes David look even worse. He's even more culpable for some of these, the the fallout because he didn't act. And he seemed to at least have a suspicion that something was going on. If he so quickly was like, yeah, that sounds about like my son. And so we're going to, we're going to get out of here. So he leaves. His personal bodyguard is mostly Philistines. They're foreigners. And that makes sense. They don't have any family ties within Israel, so they'd be less likely to uh, join a plot, join a coup. They're just they're getting paid to take care of David. And so all of those guys are leaving with him. Again, think hundreds and maybe thousands, not tens or twenties of people who are leaving Jerusalem. Now we're going to see five one-on-one encounters. You would think this chapter may be full of drama. It's not. It's full of talking. So David has these one-on-ones with five different people, and we're going to look at each one in turn. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with me? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us. When I don't know where I'm going, go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, Wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. So David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. So they're standing outside, and all these guys are walking past David. And Ittai, who's a Philistine, who's the head of this group of 600 soldiers who are part of David's personal bodyguard, is walking past. And David says, listen, you don't need to come with us. I've wandered in the wilderness for years. Remember, he did that with Saul for seven or eight or ten years of his life. I've done that. I've got nothing to offer you. I have no idea where we're going. I can't promise you anything. It would be better for you to stay. You're a foreigner. Absalom is not going to have any issue with you. You're going to be able to find a place in his army. Just stay. It's interesting that David even refers to him as King Absalom in that moment. Maybe there's some sense of David that it's a done deal. I don't think that's true, but it is interesting that he chooses to refer to Absalom as King Absalom. He says, stay with the new king. You don't need to come with me. And Ittai's response is, is strong. He says, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm locked into you. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going. It, it, it reminds me of Ruth. If you remember, that's David's great-grandmother. That book 
uh, in that story where Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, when Naomi, who's an Israelite, says, I've got nothing for you, Ruth, who is a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. I've got nothing for you. You need to go home. And Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. Your people are my people. Where you go, I will go. Be it for me to leave you. Ruth takes on a huge risk in connecting to Naomi. She's risking the, the, the future for herself in terms of being married or having a son. That is the highest ideal for a woman at this time is to get married and to have boys. And Ruth is putting all of that on the line to stay connected to her mother-in-law. And Ite is doing something very similar. Again, we have a foreigner who's pledging to an Israelite. I don't care if it costs me my life and the life of my family. I'm not going anywhere. And David says, well, come on then. And they march out of the city. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. David also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then David said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if God says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let God do to me whatever seems good to him. That's a very, those two sentences are, are key. We'll read them again. Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if God says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let God do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimez with you and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they stayed there. So what you have here is the, the priests are with David. Zadok and Abiathar, their job is to take care of the ark. And so they're bringing the ark with them as David leaves the city. And they get to the edge of the city and David says, no, we're not, no. We're not doing this. The ark stays in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It's the center of our cultural life. And that, that's where it's staying. It's not coming with me. This to me is when David wakes up. He's been slumbering since chapter 11. It's actually been nine years. That's how long you have to stretch back to go back to chapter 11 when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. That's a nine-year time period. And during all of that time, David is pretty much sleepwalking. He's in this kind of stupor. He's, per, he's paralyzed. These couple of sentences make me think he's starting to wake up. We see the David that we saw in 1 Samuel at the beginning of 2 Samuel. This David who has great faith in the Lord, who can say, I recognize the kingship. It's not mine. God gave it to me, and God can take it away from me. And if he wants to, he can give it back to me again. So the ark is not, it's not a good luck charm. It's not magic. Just because the ark is with me doesn't necessarily mean God is with me. And so we're not going to bring it out as a, like a rabbit's foot. We're going to leave it in Jerusalem where it belongs. And I'm fully confident in God's ability to either reject me or to restore me. Again, I think it shows great faith in David. I don't think he's resigned. I don't think he's rolling over and dying. I don't think he's going into a fetal position. I think he's saying, I, I recognize that I, I'm the king. And I also recognize that God may be done with me, but I'm not sure. And so I'm going to hold everything loosely at this point. 
you can see that David's not done fighting because he says to Zadok and Abiathar, go back. And y'all are basically going to be spies for me. I'm going to wait down by the river these 20 miles away. You send word to me through your sons, anything you hear, anything that Absalom's planning, any strategy that's going to you send it to me so I can make the necessary arrangements. I don't think he's quitting. I think he's giving God room to work. It's an expression of faith, I believe. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and they were weeping as they went up. All that signs of mourning. Now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him. His robe was torn and dust was on his head. And David said to Hushai, if you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, your majesty, I'll be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. And then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimez, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, David's confident, confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. So David just got out. He's one mile outside of the city as Absalom comes into the city. And we'll pick up there next week with Hushai coming back in Jerusalem and what Absalom is doing while David is taking this 10-hour ten, ten trek to the river. So David says about Ahithophel, if you remember, we talked about him last week. So Ahithophel is one of David's most trusted advisor. He is inner circle. The Bible says when people heard Ahithophel, they thought God, God was talking. There was so much weight behind his words. He was so wise and Absalom has recruited him. He's Bathsheba's granddad. Probably not hard for Absalom to bring him into the conspiracy. And so David prays to the Lord, make his advice that is so wise, that's so weighty, make it foolishness. And then Hushai comes, someone who's also in David's inner circle. Not He doesn't carry the weight of Ahithophel, but he's someone who's close to David. And David says, sees Hushai as an answer to his prayer. And he says to him, you can do way more good back in Jerusalem then you can walk in with me. Absalom would be thrilled to know that one of my closest friends had turned on me and was now participating with him in this coup. You go and you present yourself to him. He's not going to pass up the opportunity to twist the knife in my back a little more. He would love to think and to know that someone who I loved and someone who I saw as loyal to me has now flipped And as one of his people. So you go and everything you hear, you pass on to the priests and they're going to pass on to their sons and their sons are going to come see me. The priests would not have been in the inner circle. They wouldn't have been in the room when when uh, plans were getting made, neither Zadok nor Abiathar, but Hushai would as an advisor. And so what David says is you're you're my ears on the inside. And then here's how you're going to get me the information. I'm going to wait by the river. And once you once I hear whatever's happening, whatever Absalom is planning then I'll make the necessary adjustments to my plan. So again, I think it's an indication that David hasn't yet given up. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. 
the king, the king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. Then the king said, where's your master's grandson? And Ziba said, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then David said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. So remember, ABA, uh, excuse me, Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Jonathan was David's best friend. Jonathan's dead. All of Jonathan's family's dead. And at one point, David has everything settled. It's at the height of his reign. And he says, I want to show kindness to someone in Jonathan's family. Is anybody still alive? Mephibosheth is it. He's his son. He's lame in both feet. And David brings Mephibosheth back. He's basically in self-imposed exile. He brings him back to Jerusalem. And he gives them all of his grandfather's property. His grandfather was Saul, the first king of Israel. And David gives to Mephibosheth all of his granddad's manager, property manager. He'd been running that estate. Saul died at the same time Jonathan did. So in between Saul's death and David giving the property to Mephibosheth, Ziba was running it and he was getting all of the money, all of the benefits of running that estate. When David gives it to Mephibosheth, he says to Ziba, now you're going to run it for him. You're going to still run it, but you're not going to get any money from it any longer. It's all going to go to Mephibosheth. And then David invites Mephibosheth and says, you're going to eat with me every night. Massive symbol of reconciliation and acceptance. And so Ziba, I think he's a snake. I think he sees an opportunity in the fog of war and confusion to maybe get back something that he thinks was taken from him. So he comes out with all of this food that David would need. A lot of people, I think they left in a hurry. He knows what kind of supplies they have. He's got donkeys for the women to ride. And he says, here's all of this stuff. And David said, well, where's Mephibosheth? And Zebo, I think, is lying. He says, well, he's going to Jerusalem because he thinks Absalom's going to give him the kingdom, which is stupid. Absalom is saying, I'm the king. He's not saying Mephibosheth is the king. There's nothing in here where Absalom is working for anybody other than him. I think Ziba's lying. We'll see what Mephibosheth's side of the story is uh, in a couple of weeks. But I think Ziba takes advantage of the opportunity to, he, he doesn't come right out and ask for anything, but he definitely does not hesitate to throw his boss under the bus and allow David to draw his own conclusions. And so David, for some reason, I don't know why, it's almost like the president toward the end of their term they start writing all these pardons that's what it feels like he's like oh he's he's leaving and for some reason he decides to give ziba all of saul's land back i don't know why he feels that need to make any decision at all but he does and it's a bad one so as he's leaving he gives ziba all of the land that he had given to mephibosheth as king david approached baharim a man from the same clan as saul's family came out from there and his name was shimmy the son of gera and he cursed as he came out and he pelted david and all the king's officials with stones though all the troops and the special guard one david's right and his left so i picture that like the secret service with the president in the middle and all the guys are around as he cursed shimmy said get out get out you murderer you scoundrel the lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of saul in whose place you've reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You've come to ruin because you're a murderer. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go cut his head off. Everybody needs a friend like Abishai. 
But the king says, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord said, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. So after 10 or 11 hours, 20 miles, you got this guy up on the ridge throwing rocks at you, throwing dirt at you, cursing you, saying to David, you're a murderer. David was a murderer. But he didn't kill the people Shimmy thought he killed. Shimmy's from the clan of Saul, and he thinks David killed a guy named Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and a guy named Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army. And both of those guys, those guys died during the transition from Saul to David. And David make a, made a huge public deal of saying, I didn't have anything to do with either of their deaths. But Shimmy doesn't buy it. He thinks David was behind both of them. And he says, God's repaying you for that. You're a scoundrel. You're a murderer. And God's repaying you for that. He is a murderer, but he killed somebody else. He killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And then you have this guy who's David's nephew, who's also a leader in his army, Abishai, who says, let me kill him. You're the king. He didn't get to talk to you like that. And David, it's a response is very similar to what he said to Zadok about the ark. I don't know what God is doing. For all I know, God is inspiring him to say these things about me. When you hear the word curse, don't think cussing. It's not bad language. It's actual curses. God damn you. That's what he's saying. Whatever the thousand to, you know, the 3,000 year old version of that is. That's what he's saying. And the understanding is those words carry weight. They're not just words. That that, particularly if the Lord is in that, that that is what will happen. And David is saying, I don't know that God is not inspiring him to say that to me. So you don't touch him and I don't touch him. We'll just let him keep cursing. And God will either, either God is in it and I'm cursed or God is not in it and he will give me blessings instead of the misery that I'm experiencing. And so he and all his guys, at the end of the day, they get to the river and they're wiped out. David has literally been walking in the wilderness and for many of you, you can relate to that, at least metaphorically. Think of the things that are swirling in David. He's got this family strife. His son is literally trying to kill him. He's been the king for decades, and now abruptly and unexpectedly that job may be taken from him. He, it's not just a job for him. It's a calling. God anointed him to be the king, and so he doesn't even know where God is in the midst of these circumstances. He's physically drained. He's emotionally exhausted. He's spiritually confused. Can you relate to that on any level? All of us, multiple times in our lives, will go through, you can call it a wilderness, you can call it a desert, a transition, whatever... We're going to call it wilderness just for shorthand. All of us, multiple times in our lives, will experience very similar circumstances. We're going to be physically drained. We're going to be emotionally worn out. We're going to be spiritually confused. There's going to be tension in our primary relationships. There's going to be confusion regarding our professional life. 
We're going to have no idea where God is in the midst of all of those things. They say that the average person has 10 jobs before they turn 40, 15 before they retire, moves 11 times over the course of their life. Everyone is going to be touched by sickness. Everyone is going to be touched by death. You've all heard of a midlife crisis that's like my age people where we don't know what we're doing with our life and we buy a convertible or whatever. There's actually this thing, they're calling it a quarter life crisis. 25 year olds. I look back and think those, those were like the glory days. But now, 25 year olds, 75% of 25 year olds are experiencing an existential crisis. They're saying, I don't know who I am, and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm ever going to figure it out. At 25 years old, they're experiencing what many people don't used to not experience until they were 45 or 50. We all are going to go through these times, and we're going to go through them repeatedly. It has nothing to do with whether you're a good or a bad person. It has nothing to do with how closely connected you are to the Lord. It's just life. Life is change, and we experience so much of that change as loss, and it can be difficult to navigate And so I would imagine in a room like this, there's easy 20 of you who are currently, you're where David is. You're walking through a wilderness, and you may be in hour one or hour five, and hopefully you're in hour nine. But you never know until you're on the other side of it. And there are a couple of things looking at the way David navigated his wilderness that hopefully can be a handhold for you. As you walk through yours, the first thing, and I would encourage you to begin to pray for this now, is an ite. Everybody needs one. Everybody needs a friend like that who is faithful and devoted. Someone who says, I'm sticking with you. It doesn't matter what it costs me. It doesn't matter if it costs me my life. Think again to Ruth. You can read that book today. It will take you 15 minutes to read the story of Ruth. It's a phenomenal look at covenant love and covenant loyalty. And you think about our stereotypes of relationships between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, and that's the relationship. That's captured there where Ruth at huge risk and sacrifice to herself says, I'm not going anywhere, Naomi. I'm sticking with you. You see Ite saying the same thing to David. I'm not going anywhere, even if it costs me my life, even if there's a better offer on the table. I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with you. Everybody needs a friend like that. God's gift to you in the wilderness is an Ite. However, for many of us, when we experience a wilderness, we tend to isolate ourselves. Sometimes it's embarrassment and pride. We don't want people to know that we're struggling. Oftentimes, I find that it's people don't want to burden someone else. Like Everybody's busy. Everybody has their own problems. The last thing they need is me dumping on them. And so at the time when we most need these type of deep friendships, we tend to withdraw from them. Even Jesus, the most emotionally healthy and spiritually connected man who ever lived, on the, the, the night that he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I don't want to be by myself. Peter, James, and John, you come with me. They were terrible friends. They all fell asleep. But Jesus didn't want to be alone. If he needed support and companionship, how much more so do we when we're going through our own wilderness Experience. I want to encourage you, begin to ask the Lord to bring an ite into your life. In our city, particularly in this culture, deep friendships are one of the greatest needs people have. But for some reason, we won't pray for friends. I think maybe we think we're losers because we can't make them on our own. And so we're saying, God, help me. It's not true. Friends are a gift from the Lord, and you need an ite. doesn't have to be your best friend. Someone who you go on vacation with or somebody that's a lot of fun on Friday night. 
This is someone who loves God and loves you. Someone who's devoted to God and devoted to you. Someone who's going to stick next to you regardless of what you're walking through. It's a different kind of friend. It may not be your best friend, but it's the best kind of friend. Those of you who are married may say, that's my spouse. I would say, don't make it your spouse. Most of the things that I'm talking about, your spouse is going to be right next to you in the wilderness. And then to say to him or her, in addition to being my companion in the wilderness, I also kind of need you to be my rock. It's too much. They're going to be with you anyway. This is someone else who's maybe a bit removed from the circumstance, but who is completely devoted to God and to you and who will be a channel of his grace into your life. If you withdraw, you are cutting yourself off from one of the primary gifts God wants to give you. Don't allow pride. Don't allow embarrassment. Don't allow shame to do that. You're shutting off one of the primary ways God wants to work. Pray for an ite. You'll need one. The second thing, and this is actually the most important, but it's slippery. It's hard to get our minds around. David had what I'm going to call a humility regarding the will of God. David did not pursue, did not presume to know what God was doing. He says to Zadok, I don't know. You take the ark back. I don't know if God's done with me or not. He may be. If he is, I'm okay. If he, if, if he's not, he's fully able to restore me to the king. He says to Abishai, we're not cutting anybody's head off. God may be anointing, for lack of a better word, inspiring Shimmy to curse me. I don't know. If not, God can bless me. The words will fall on deaf ears. I don't know what God is doing. And yet, David doesn't just roll over and die. He sends five spies back into Jerusalem in order to get intelligence, in order to get information so he can make a plan. He holds, but he holds loosely. And that, I think, is very, that's tricky. We tend, we're fight or flight people. We tend to move to one extreme or the other and to calibrate our hearts in such a way that we can hold, but hold loosely. That is not easy to do. I can't give you three steps for how. I wish I could. It's a delicate tension that we have to maintain in our life on a day in and week in and month in and month out basis. And again, our tendency is either to say, God's made me the king, and so give me a sword, I'm fighting, or God's done with me, and so I'm running. But to be able to hold both of those things in tension at the same time, again, to hold, but to hold loosely, to encourage you, begin to cultivate that attitude in your own heart. You'll need it when you walk through one of those wilderness times. What you want to do is cling fiercely and strongly to your faith in a God who works, but not dictate to that God how he has to work. And we tend to do that all the time. One of our kids the other day wanted ice cream, and I said, sure, how much? Three scoops. Don't, don't judge. Three scoops. And he said, I want more. And I said, you can have three scoops. He said, well, I'm not going to have any then. And I said, all right. I don't, I don't know what the proper response is to that. We do that to the Lord all the time. God, this is what I want. And I want it this way. And if you're not going to give it to me this way, then I don't want anything to do with it. We wash our hands and we walk away from him. Petulant children. We do it all the time. God, I know that you can heal and this is the way I want you to heal. And this is the time frame. If it's not going to look this way in this time frame, then I'm out. I'm not trusting you with that anymore. 
God, I'm looking for this shift in relationship, and this is what I want. And we give him our list. She's got to be this tall and look this way and go to this school. We give him the list. And if it's not this, then I'm, I'm out. I'm just going to go on my own and do my own thing. God, I want this job. You can play that on every area of life. Hold, but hold loosely, tightly to him as a God who you can trust to act. Loosely to the specifics of what that action actually looks like. Very difficult, I think, to cultivate that posture, calibrate your heart in such a way, in that way over time. But I want to challenge you and encourage you to do that super vital posture if you're going to walk through the wilderness in a fruitful way. Otherwise, you're either going to wind up clinging to an outcome, and when it doesn't happen, you're going to be devastated. Or you're going to wind up washing your hands of the whole thing and moving away from the Lord. And then he's not, you're not connected at that point. You've cut off his ability to shape and to move in your circumstances. Last thing, and we'll close with this just really briefly. When you're going through one of those states, you're vulnerable. Your heart's exposed because you're confused and you're hurt and you're worn out and you're stri- Everything is raw. And when you're raw, you're more vulnerable to condemnation. Accusations, maybe is a better word, will come at you. It's shimmy, standing on the ridgetop, hurling insults, curses at you. And notice the thing that shimmy said was true. David was a murderer, but he wasn't a murderer in the way shimmy said. It's there's the, the accusations that come at us when we're going through these transitions normally have the veneer or there's something to that and it sticks. But they're laced and shot throughout with falsehood. The, the, the murder that Shimmy is thinking of is not the one David committed. David had been forgiven for the murder that he committed. And for many of us, we're going through those difficult times. And sometimes, unfortunately, the accusations actually come from the well-meaning body of Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody try to comfort a parent who's lost a child with some foolishness about God needing another angel or a flower or something in heaven. It's ridiculous. He doesn't. It's not what he does. And then the, it's, I'm sure it's from a place of desiring to provide some level of comfort and support. But all it does is confuse the issue. And I find that, again, particularly within the church, when people have a confused sense of the will of God and are trying to, they're trying to be helpful. But those things wind up lodging in people's hearts, accusations either against the Lord or against themselves. Just know the enemy doesn't play fair and you're already stressed and stretched and burned out. And so he's going to kick you while you're down and he will lob accusations at you about you and at you about God. You will come through the wilderness with scars and scars are fine. Open wounds are not. And so if that's where you are right now, I just want you to be aware of how the enemy may be trying to sow lies into your mind and your heart about yourself or about the Lord. And that's why it's so important for you to know what the Bible says. It's objectively true. And I know when you're going through those wilderness times, it can seem dry as dust, but it's super important. I would say particularly the New Testament because it reminds you of your identity in Jesus and it reminds you of the character of God. And it reminds you of the way God acts. And those things, sometimes when you're physically drained, to be reminded of those truths, even if you don't feel them, 
to be reminded of them can really serve as kind of an anchor going through those difficulties. We're going to take some time and pray. I'm going to go ahead and close because I want to make sure we have enough time for ministry. I would, again, imagine there's 20 of you, easy, who are experiencing this wilderness time this morning. You're physically tired. You're emotionally drained. You're spiritually confused. There's turmoil in your relationships. Maybe there's difficulty in your professional life. You don't really know what the Lord is saying to you. And I want to challenge and encourage you to come forward for prayer this morning. Nobody is going to give you advice and nobody's going to try to fix it. That's not what we do. What's going to happen is you're going to come forward and people are going to pray. And they're going to pray for God to bring an ite into your life. That you have ears to hear who that person is and what he's saying to you. They're going to pray for you to be able to hold all things loosely. For you to cling tightly to God as one who's trustworthy, who will act. But to hold loosely all of the specific outcomes of how he may be moving and shaping things in your life. And they're going to pray for God to protect your heart. That you would know the truth of who he is and who you are. I know that 20 feet can be like a mile for some of you, but I want to strongly encourage you to come forward for prayer. For this next few minutes, let these guys be your ite. Let them be the ones who are, you don't have to know their name, but let them be the ones who God is giving to you in this moment to minister to you. Most likely your circumstances aren't going to change in the next couple of minutes. There's a 100% likelihood that your heart will change. If you bring it before the Lord during this time. For some of you, you don't need to come forward. And I would encourage you as Kaylee worships to worship with her. That's intercession and also to pray. If you know the name of someone who comes up, you don't have to know what's going on in their life. But from your seat, you can pray for them. You know the reason they're up here is because they're going through some level of difficulty. And again, that has nothing to do with anyone's relative worth or relative goodness or relative spirituality. It's just life. And all of us are going to walk through lots of them. And if this morning is your turn, then please don't walk out of here on your own. You're not designed to live that way. So you guys can stand. Ministry teams, you guys can come forward. I'm going to pray. And then you guys can respond as Kaylee leads us in worship. And she'll dismiss us uh, when it's time to do so. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now. And that you would minister. I do believe there's... Numerous men and women in this room who are in the midst of a wilderness time, a midst of transition and change, physically, relationally, professionally, spiritually. God, I pray we don't have answers. We have you. And so we're looking to you this morning to minister into the lives of the men and women, the students in this room. I pray there be no shame or condemnation for people to respond. And I pray for those who courageously will do so, that you would meet them, that you would meet them. I pray for our ministry teams and their prayers would be powerful and effective as they stand in the gap and stand in faith for those who are going through periods of difficulty and confusion. God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of everyone in this room, those who are, uh, we would all leave encouraged and strengthened and comforted. We absolutely pray you would work in circumstances, that you'd be moving the pieces around, opening doors and building bridges, 
realigning relationships and opportunities as you know best and as you see fit. But God, for these moments in this room, we're primarily concerned with hearts. And so, God, we open ours to you this morning. That's what Kaylee said earlier. We have to open our hearts to the Lord. He doesn't kick the door down. He just knocks. So I want to encourage you right now in your seat. Say, God, I open my heart to you. I welcome you to come in and to minister whatever it is that I need. In Jesus' name. You guys come forward as you feel.